Silicon Valley Bank goes down and Joe Biden starts bailing. Plus, Ron DeSantis basically goes full dove on Ukraine. We'll discuss all this more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, nicotine Noah Rothman, and the sage of authenticity, Woods. Jim Garrity, you are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsor of this episode is Moink. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. And please, once again, forgive my voice. I will eventually be over this cold. So, Jim Garrity... Big events over the weekend. Silicon Valley Bank goes down. So does Signature Bank. We're recording on Tuesday. Joe Biden comes out before markets open at 930 yesterday saying he is not bailing out Silicon Valley Bank and not costing taxpayers anything. But he is, in effect, bailing it out. What do you make of it? I was going to say, I think the way you characterized it, that no, this is not a taxpayer expense, but yes, this does count as a bailout, is a fair and accurate way of describing it. Um, it's fa- also fascinating how quickly this came together. There was a run on the bank of Silicon Valley Bank uh, on Friday, apparently 40-some billion dollars of attempted withdrawals all at once. And over the weekend, I was noticing this and saying, huh, you know, this might be an interesting story to write about on Monday. By Sunday, I'm like, okay, this is definitely the kind of story I'm going to have to do an explainer on. And by the way, listeners, if you've picked up on this, when I write an explainer style Morning Jolt newsletter, it's generally a sign that I needed this issue explained to me. Uh, If I'm any good at explaining things to laymen, it's because I am a layman. Um, And by Monday, this was like the biggest story of the country with far-reaching consequences for the U.S. economy. Uh, so the money that is going to be – so first of all, as, as I think most listeners know, you put your money into a bank. The first $250,000 you put into your bank account is protected by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. If you're of a certain age, you probably remember bank commercials saying at the end, member FDIC. The thing is, anything past $250,000, uh, the FDIC does not protect. And you really should know that. And if you're keeping millions or in the cases of some businesses out in Silicon Valley, billions of dollars in a particular bank – that money is not guaranteed to be protected by the FDIC. The FDIC gets the money to make these guarantees in something that's kind of akin to insurance premiums, right? You, you banks pay into this. It's got like 125, 128, something like that billion dollars uh, in the kitty as of the end of last year. There should be enough money in it to cover all of the deposits of everyone for Silicon Valley Bank and uh, Signature Bank up in New York. However, it's going to draw it down a whole lot. So, no, the taxpayers themselves are not going to be giving the money to make these people whole. However, it's going to be coming out of that, you know, supply from the FDIC, and that supply is going to have to be re, uh, rebuilt, restocked up, and that's going to be done through higher fees to banks as part of their quote-unquote insurance premiums. Now, who pays that? Well, you as a bank customer do because your bank is going to say, oh, we've got a much higher bill from the FDIC. We're going to have to start charging people more for overdraft fees, uh, ATM fees, all the little way, minimum balance you know, penalties, all that stuff. All the different ways that your bank makes money off of you are probably going to go up because of this because the FDIC needs to you know, rebuild its supply that is going to go out of the way to, to take care of these two banks. This is a very complicated issue. I've tried to lay it out in two straight morning jolts. A lot of this reveals the fact that uh, this bank put a lot of money into government bonds, which have low rates of returns, which are usually very stable. You're in okay shape as long as inflation is really high. 
listeners probably noticed, inflation's been really high for about two years. Um, and as a result, that coupled with the fact that so much of the entire Silicon Valley technology and venture capital world uh, is invested in one particular bank is what turned this into such a big problem. I'll, I could go into greater and longer depth, but I, I don't want to bore everybody, but the general gist is too big to fail still exists. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm sure Biden wants to take a, a victory lap for saying he saved Silicon Valley, but he's also basically saying there are, the FDIC will effectively cover anything for anybody in any bank from here on out, whether he realizes he's saying this or not. So no, uh, I, my my confession is I'm a I'm a bailer in financial crisis or anything close to a financial crisis. And the the point here wouldn't be to to save folks at Silicon Valley. The the point would be to stop a run on further regional banks. And the problem with financial panics is their damage is so wide ranging and so wanton. You know, you you want everyone directly involved in the Silicon Valley Bank to get just screwed, right? I mean that that would be the the just outcome. That's what we'd support as free marketeers. But then you you end up, if things bounce the wrong way and, and you're too passive, um, with, with a bunch of other people paying a price who really did nothing wrong. You know, um, We saw this in the financial crisis in, in uh, 2008, 2009. Um, there was nothing, you know, uh, some, some poor guy who ended up unemployed when unemployment rate was above 10 percent had done to be unemployed, right? But that was the the uh, the follow-on effects of uh, the financial crisis. But what do you make of it? And a panic is, by definition, lizard-brained. Apparently, this one was organized on Slack um, by investors in, in this space in Silicon Valley who got nervous about whether they were going to have money to, to pull out of this thing. And that's the sort of thing that can create a contagion. Now, you have Institutions like Goldman Sachs saying, well, a lot of other banks are not similarly exposed because this bank did a lot of bad things with, well, just not prudent things with uh, the money that it had investing in long-term securities that would lose a lot of value if interest rates went up. And they didn't foresee that interest rates would go up, which is kind of silly. But there's a big public policy component to this as well. In 2021, American monetary policy as determined by Democrats in Congress and the Democratic president, was to hemorrhage money, was to raid the Treasury, spend as much as fast as humanly possible. And the notion here that no one saw this as inflationary is just revisionist history. It's false. The people who did were shouted down. But there were plenty of voices warning that this would be the cumulative effect of all this spending. And it was. And the Fed was asleep at the switch. The Fed didn't do anything about it until they had to do something about it, and they had to do it as fast as humanly possible. And that created this effect. Now, what is it going to have on the Fed moving forward? Are they going to continue to, to raise interest rates? Are we going to bump this by uh, 50 basis points at the next meeting at the risk of more financial instability in the banks? Maybe not. But then what does that do to inflation rates? Which we got interest, or we got word now that they're not rising as fast as they were, but they're still rising. And it's not, the inflation has not been whipped. So now the, the federal government and the independent Fed and Congress and the president are all in this very difficult trap to, to continue to address rising inflation rates would be to risk the stability of a lot of these, these institutions now that have similarly malinvested in long-term securities. What do they do? Charlie? Well, whatever they do, I think there are two important parts of it. The first is that it is done through Congress. 
I don't think it is necessarily the case that what the Fed has done thus far is ultra vires. But I would hope when we're talking about this much money that Congress gets involved. The second is to try to create a set of rules that can be adhered to. Jim laid out how the system works. There is nothing whatsoever, in my estimation, wrong with having FDIC insurance limits up to $250,000. There's nothing wrong with it per se, and there's nothing wrong with those who had deposits in those accounts claiming the money. Everyone knew the rules going in. Every FDI-insured institution in the United States allows each entity, each depositor, to save up to $250,000, and whatever happens, to walk away whole. We know that. You see it on TV. It's not a bailout. Over that, well, we have rules in place that cut off at the $250,000.01, and they aren't being observed. Now, I share, Rich, your squishiness on this in that while I am opposed to the action that the Federal Reserve has taken, with the exception of that which was previously provided for, the FDIC limits and the seizing of the bank and the selling of its assets to reimburse depositors, I do understand that this is a genuine federal concern, that there are genuinely systemic questions at stake, and that the potential consequences of not intervening might be higher than those associated with intervening. In part because in a society set up as ours is, we are going to see federal bailouts if we have a banking crisis. And if people are unemployed or made poorer as the result of that banking crisis, the federal government's going to step in with unemployment insurance and so forth to deal with it. But there has to be, surely, there has to be some sort of consequence here that is not simply a signal sent to all of these banks that while it says $250,000 in the small print, or really the big print, it's, as a de facto matter, infinite. If we want to have infinitely secured bank deposits, then we should pass that through Congress. There are, of course, all sorts of issues with that. The moment, John Cochran explained this on my own podcast yesterday, the moment you infinitely... Whoa, secure, John Cochran? Yeah. Wow. The Was moment the, you the infinitely... Capital, were you guest hosting on the Capitol Record or what? No, he just came on wow. the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Jeez. But the moment that you infinitely secure bank deposits, you take out any responsibility of the depositor to determine whether or not the bank is safe or not. And in so doing, you encourage every bank to be risky because why wouldn't they? But if this is the argument now that we cannot risk bank runs, that if big companies have their deposits in 
a given institution, the loss of the money that they have saved will cause mass unemployment or the destruction of the wine industry or damage to climate change research or medical research, then we're going to have to change the rules. We cannot have an informal system where banks that are well-connected or that are deemed too big to fail, whatever that means, or systemic, whatever that means, get one set of rules and other banks get another set of rules. We can't have people going in unclear as to where the line is or considering it to be a gray area. So I do understand there has to be some sort of flexibility and the Federal Reserve has a lot of flexibility as we're learning, sometimes for good reason. But you know, at what point are we going to try to set up a set of regulations that we stick to? At what point can we you know, parche Larry Summers talk about moral hazard? At what point can we expect of our government that it does not allow people to take all of the benefits while the market is good and none of the downsides when it crashes? I think people are rightly asking those questions, and I don't think that it is populism for everyday voters to be irritated by this and to say, look, when people who are well-off or well-connected or have the right politics or just are in charge of institutions that are systemically important to our country are involved, the government bends over backwards to bend the rules, but when the little guy is involved. Well, sorry, you knew the risks going in. Yeah, so Jim, Charlie makes the, uh, a very good anti-bailout case. I mean, that, that is it. And I supported after the financial crisis, you know, the effort to, to write, write rules that would have uh, created clear markers here and uh, set out who's, who's uh, systematically um, important and, and who's not. But the fact is that there's always a, a new way of... Um, Banks getting in trouble, and we have a, um, a fractional banking system. So everyone, when, when the, the run comes from you, everyone at the end of the day is insolvent because you know n no one has all, all the money they're, they're uh, supposed to have uh, at any given moment. And um, this is just you look throughout throughout history, Republicans, Democrats, whoever, when anyone's sitting in the chair and and. Uh, Staring down the potential consequences, they all end up bailing no matter what. And and maybe this this one isn't necessary. Maybe various bailouts in the past haven't been necessary, but they they all kind of calculate the risk and like, nah, we're we're, we're not we're not going to take down we're not going to go down the risky path path if we can avoid it. Because again, there's just too many innocent bystanders. Yeah, but you end up with each you know successive step in this process, further socializing the risk and further concentrating the benefits of this. Uh, a whole bunch of people, both in Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, uh, and all of those venture capitalists, like, you know, all of this money sloshing around in the economy, they've really enjoyed the run-up. They've really enjoyed all this stuff. Now, all of a sudden, the circumstances change. And they're, like, at minimum, like, I think first, the first thing, I, I probably should have mentioned this in our first segment, I think there's a very big difference between businesses that are operating through Silicon Valley Bank and needed to make payroll and are saying, look, if we, if we aren't made whole by somebody, FDIC or anybody else, some other bank coming in and buying this, if we aren't made whole, we can't make payroll next month that we have mass layoffs and our company collapses. Like that's that's one thing. Anybody who's got personal accounts over $250,000, like if you've got a half million, million dollars in cash in your bank accounts, hey, you knew the risks. 
You, you saw those FDIC commercials. So the first thing is that personal accounts, I don't think it's the job of the FDIC or federal government to rescue any of those people. And don't cry for me, Argentina. All of those people are doing just fine. I, I, you know, we, we are not talking about small mom and pops here. We're talking about people who had, at minimum, $250,000 uh, in cash just sitting in their accounts, not being invested somewhere, not being, you know, necessarily something like that. So the first thing is I don't like the idea of bailing out, of, of rescuing those people beyond $250,000. Everybody knew the rules going in. Businesses, it's a somewhat different story. But I still would have preferred if a bank or some other institution had come in and purchased Silicon Valley Bank. And that would have, you know, now, by the way, people had their money in Silicon Valley Bank. They might not have been made whole, but I think there were talks about people who were like making deals and there was talk of like 65%, 70%. So those people would not have lost all of their money. Would it have been a hit? Yeah. Would it have been a, a, a you know, gut punch for a lot of these companies? Yeah. Yeah, that would have hurt. But, you know. Uh, one, this is part of the, the calculation of this risk. Second of all, like the other thing is, again, we're talking about venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. We're talking about some of the very richest Americans. I don't like to play, you know, too much populism and the, you know, rich fat cats and all that kind of stuff. But we are talking about people who are going to live comfortably for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And, and I, this and is not you having, know, yeah. having another bank uh, take it over would have been the usual play. There's yeah. been some reporting that there are Biden officials who are just so anti like any merger mm. <laughs> and any takeover that they that they were kind of obstacles to well, it. And then also my understanding, you also you usually take a haircut, even if you're yeah. Yeah, um, which which doesn't seem the case here. Right. And it's yeah. probably not a particularly attractive proposition because of the way that it was set up. It doesn't lend a great deal of money. It's an odd bank in that it is the place where people who've been given $7 billion in one move to develop a new drone parked their money. But if you're JP Morgan Chase or Bank of America, you're looking at this bank and you're thinking, I don't know quite what this does for us. And I don't want this to happen again or to some of its investments to go south or to deal with the political fallout of taking over assets that we ourselves, being J.P. Morgan or Bank of America or what you will, would never have got involved mm -hmm. with in the first place. Right. Yeah. And then to underline another point Jim made, it's just the the, the Fed has a, has a lot of responsibility here, you know, basically going to zero for a very long time and now now ratcheting up interest rates and and not waiting you know we had an inflation report right this morning what's still six percent annually pretty pretty big number but the the interest rate increases that have happened still haven't worked their way uh, through the through the economy so noah exit question to you there will despite what biden did yesterday be a run on regional banks which uh, stocks, uh, some of them have, have gone down steeply, uh, yes or no? I'm cautiously optimistic that the answer is no, that the, the, the real emotional phase of what could have been a, a, a broader panic has passed. And one of the uh, concerns was that the degree to which a lot of payroll processing companies are tied in with SVB, it could have trickled down into how average people experience uh, this effect by just not getting their checks on time. So I think that risk is passed. I think there's a, a real tail risk uh, politically for the Biden administration here because it is unpalatable, it is distasteful, and it uh, really frustrates the, the fire-breathing progressive wing of his party, and it's an easy thing to demagogue. So I don't think we're going to hear the end of, of the effect of this in political terms, from from Joe Biden's left, Charlie. 
I am cautiously optimistic as well that the knock-on effects from what happened at Silicon Valley Bank will be contained or at least sufficiently contained as to avoid a crisis. What I think we are going to see more of, and not just in the banking sector, is consequences of the remedy to inflation, which is rapidly increasing interest rates. I have on this podcast for a long time been complaining about the fact that after the extraordinary spending binge that we witnessed during COVID, a bipartisan spending binge, much of which was signed off on by President Trump, the Biden administration and the Democratic Party elected to spend another $2 trillion and then tried to spend another six on top of that. The consequence of that was massive inflation. The way you fight inflation is to increase interest rates quick. And although I think Silicon Valley Bank made huge mistakes, obviously, if they were looking at their balance sheets in 2020, they would not have predicted interest rates that would rise to 4% or higher. Now, there will be other institutions out there, whether they are banks or businesses, that are put in a similar situation, that have made similar mistakes by this dramatic shift in our fiscal situation. So while I don't think that we're going to see a nationwide bank run, I do think there are going to be all sorts of unpredictable failures in our economy over the next few years that, absent the irresponsible behavior of Washington, D.C. under both parties, would probably not have come to fruition. Yes, yeah, so Jim, there, there you have a, a, another no, but more turbulence ahead from Charlie. Yeah, I, I don't think you'll see anything akin to the bank run we saw on Friday. I think most people recognize that Silicon Valley Bank really had a unique set of circumstances because of how tied it was into the tech sector in that area. And the sheer number of venture capital companies that basically required their companies they were investing in to do their banking through Silicon Valley Bank. Um, but I think there'll be lingering jitters. I would not want to have stock in a regional bank for the next six months or so. I think people will be really on heightened alert for any other sign of weakness in any other big regional bank. So I'll make it unanimous at no, which means if you have any money in a regional bank, you better get out now because <laughs> our unanimous answers often turns out to, uh, to come up a cropper. With that, Charlie, let's go to you for a word from our sponsor, Moink. Moink, one of my favorites, one of uh, our monthly routines, rituals even, is receiving the Moink box, which we subscribe to, and which you should subscribe to as well. I guess you don't know what Moink is. Moink is a delivery service, a subscription service. You pay every month. They send you a box full of meat. You get to decide which meat you can choose from grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, sustainable wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and much more, delivered straight to your door. It's particularly delicious because Moink farmers farm like our grandparents did, and Moink meat tastes like it should. You can feel good too as a Moink subscriber, knowing that you're helping family farms stay financially independent, and knowing that you are outside of the oligopoly. 60% of U.S. pork production comes from just one company, which is owned by the Chinese, and their hogs are given something called ractopamine, which is banned in 160 countries, including China, 
and yet you'll find it in your grocery aisle every day. Now, this is not just my view. Shark Tank host Kevin O'Leary has called Moink's bacon the best bacon he's ever tasted. Ring doorbell founder Jamie Simonoff jumped at the chance to invest in Moink. And, well, he should have. You should do it, too, by subscribing at moinkbox.com slash editors. And if you do, as a listener of this show, you will get free filet mignon in every order for a year. That's 12 filet mignon editions. If you go to moinkbox.com, M-O-I-N-K box.com slash editors. Awesome. Thanks so much, Charlie. So, Noah, we had uh, Tucker Carlson putting out these survey questions on our Ukraine policy to presidential candidates and prospective presidential candidates. Ron DeSantis answered, by the way, which is is pretty much a a sign he's in, uh, among others, but didn't go the full Tucker, but went like three quarters Tucker. He referred to the war as a territorial dispute, which you know, is, is technically accurate, but uh, may, maybe underplays and, and minimizes what what really happened there. Says he uh, opposes a blank check, uh, opposes giving uh, Ukraine F-16s and some other offensive weapons and warns against further entangling ourselves in this conflict. What do you make of it? I think Ron DeSantis has made a mistake. I think he has clutched close to his chest a bomb with a very long fuse. It may seem politically adroit in the moment, but this statement, and I encourage everyone to read it, is equal parts weak and convoluted. First of all, he's going to have to explain himself often on this one. And I don't believe he has a convincing narrative here, in part because I don't really believe he believes his position. He has undergone a conversion from Congressman Ron DeSantis without an effective conversion narrative, which suggests to me that it's a political maneuver. He's going to struggle to have to explain the nuances between a hypothetical threat posed by a Chinese land grab and the ongoing one executed by Russia on allied borders. I don't think he has a convincing argument there, and he's going to be made to argue it often, which will expose him to the charge of inconsistency. He's also adopting Joe Biden's position on quite a lot of American foreign policy entanglements, circa status quo ante February 24, 2022, right after the invasion. Um, He's arguing that this is, for example, a distraction from domestic pursuits. He's ruling out uh, weapons platforms and systems that could attack Russian territory, which was a debate within the Biden administration that they have subsequently overcome. But I don't know if he, how he would be able to define what Ukraine's borders are, where those staging areas are legitimate targets, where they're not. Uh, and lastly, he's functionally articulating a view that would constitute cutting and running, which is exactly what our adversaries count on and rely on. And to some degree, have a lot of evidence to suggest that that's American policy. After a certain amount of time, you can wait us out. America and the West have already committed prestige and material to this conflict to downgrade our involvement would be a loss. He would be articulating a policy of retreat, of retrenchment. And in their, in that sense, if he even manages to make it to a general election, gives the Democratic Party's nominee, Joe Biden or anybody else, room to maneuver to the right of Ron DeSantis on this issue. If he thinks Donald Trump, who would lose the nomination in this scenario, would back him up for the, for the sake of consistency, it's a foolish 
notion, he would be getting attacked from all sides of the issue, and I don't think he would be able to confidently defend it. Uh, right now, there's this notion abroad that, look, the longer this goes on, Americans aren't going to like it, aren't going to support it, sure. But I, I would venture to say that they didn't like or support America's commitment to Afghanistan and would have supported withdrawal in a hypothetical basis until they saw what it looked like and really didn't like it. Uh, I think Ron DeSantis has made a short-term calculation here that in the long term he might and should come to regret. So one of the things at play here, Charlie, is is what is the definition of the right? You know, is is Biden being more hawkish on this? Is is that uh, would that be to DeSantis's right, or is it now to DeSantis's left? You know, that, that's that's one of the the big disputes going on here. We've talked at least offline, I think maybe on some of the podcasts as well, that uh, before DeSantis had really said anything on foreign policy, he was likely to, to lean towards this faction in the party. I thought his initial answer on Ukraine on Fox and Friends a couple weeks ago, where he said no blank check, constituted that kind of lean. This, is, uh, th- this takes it further. And I agree with Noah. I think it's it's going to be a, a little hard uh, to defend when DeSantis is is doing interviews with uh, interviewers who really want to drill down on the, the foundations and the logic of this uh, position. Plus, he, he's got a, um, a, a bit of a, a balancing act to, to do here. So if you, you look at, if you just put it in terms of Reagan and Trump and, and how Republicans feel about those two figures. You know, it's basically split. You know, 40-something percent of Republicans say Reagan's the best president last 40 years. 40-something say Trump, a little, little less than Reagan. DeSantis needs to peel off some of those people, obviously, who are feel warmest about Trump. But he's not going to win all of them, and he needs to get some of those Reagan people, too. And that's what I fear. He's and just just uh, an obsession with kind of keeping up with, with Trump and um, maybe getting to, to Trump's right on some stuff, which is going to be hard, that he's going to forget about that Reagan contingent. I think more important than whether this is left-wing or right-wing is where the country is, where the voters are, both in the primary and in the general. I don't know the answer to that. I'm not sure when it comes to foreign policy questions, insofar as voters think about them seriously at all, that they filter them through a left-right graph. I'm also not sure this will hurt DeSantis in either the primary or in the general, if he is the nominee, for reasons that I outlined with Noah on my podcast recently, that the more dovish candidate usually wins. Has done for a quarter of a century, with the exceptions of 2004, which is really an exception driven by September 11th and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and 2020, which was a referendum on Donald Trump. Those, of course, are separate questions from what DeSantis should believe or what is the best policy. And I'll be honest with you, as a long-term question, I don't know quite what I think about this. Noah contemplates foreign policy often and well. I don't. I am strongly in favor of Ukraine's claim 
I think the United States is at risk of being unable, even under Joe Biden's leadership, to put its money where its mouth is. I think if a settlement presented itself that involved Ukraine losing a good chunk of land, the international community with its Ukraine flags in its windows might take it. I don't know how long our current spending and posture will be sustainable or should be. So I find it quite hard uh, to pass what is already a fairly vague statement from DeSantis into action. Two weeks ago, he said we shouldn't have a blank check. Well, what does that mean? How big should the check be? How small should the check be? He said this is not in the direct national security interest of the United States. I don't agree with that. I think that it is, but it doesn't tell us how far he would be willing to go. He called it a territorial dispute. It's not a territorial dispute. I think he's wrong about that, and I think that's the worst thing that he said. It was an invasion by a hostile power. But again, that doesn't tell us an enormous amount about what he wants to do. What it tells me is that he has calculated that in the short term, taking a skeptical line is going to help him in the primary and potentially help him in the general. And on that, I'm not sure he's wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Jim, clearly the anti-intervention position is gaining ground in the Republican Party, will likely continue to gain ground. The reason why I like, if if I'm DeSantis, why I like the phrase blank check, and I wouldn't feel compelled to go further than that, which I I think he did in the statement, is is blank check, what does it mean, right? No one supports a, a... literally a blank check for Ukraine at the same time, you know, makes you sound kind of uh, J.D. JD Vance-like. And then if you're, lo and behold, you're elected president, you can you can approve any amount of aid and then say there are various strictures on it and it's not a blank check. So the, yeah. the point here should be to, to uh, avoid constrain, overly constraining yourself. I'm getting a little tired of this as a talking point on the Republican side because I don't really think it's all that clarifying and edifying. Uh, you know, yes, Joe Biden will say whatever it takes. And then we find out like a week later, White House officials are telling Ukraine, well, when we said whatever it takes, we didn't actually mean whatever it takes. So even the people who are saying whatever it takes don't really mean whatever it takes. So the question is, if you say no blank check, all right, well, how much military aid? Well, give it, give us a number. What's your limit? What's your limit on humanitarian aid? Does any of this depend on circumstances in the, on the ground? I think how Americans feel about giving more military aid to Ukraine will be at least partially dependent on how the Ukrainian military is doing with all of that aid that they're doing. If they're doing a great job and they're advancing and they're driving Russia back, hey, like, here, sure, let's send them more. If they're doing badly and it's a stalemate, I don't know if the Americans are necessarily going to be all that enthusiastic about it. And I don't, I'm not a fan of what DeSantis is doing here, but I can't immediately whack it around like a pinata by saying, because the thing is, I don't know how Americans are going to feel come late 2023 early 2024, when Republicans are really thinking about their primary choices and had, you know, conceivably the war could still be going on in November 2024. If it's still a stalemate and we haven't seen much territorial change, then I think you'll see a lot of people around the world saying, okay, look, Russia's a bunch of bastards and we want to see Vladimir Putin punished, but this thing is going nowhere. You know, end the war, end the suffering, you know, concede these provinces in the West uh, to Ukraine, in the East to, to Russia, and just end this, and we will build up the Ukrainian military so that they can never do this again. 
yeah, I, I think that the more this drag, also there's just a question of you know Ukrainian casualties. The Washington Post had a very ominous story, and it just I think it was yesterday, the day before. You know, how long are, how long is it reasonable for the Ukrainians to keep fighting this? I know they want to fight and they want to get back every last you know square inch of their territory. I guess they use metric over there, so every square centimeter. Uh, and they want to take back Crimea. I'm not so sure taking back Crimea is a huge priority of the Biden White House or NATO or the rest of the world. And it, and it, sh- and it shouldn't be in, in my mind. Yeah, that Washington Post story, you know, who knows what the actual number is. It it, it uh, floated 120,000 killed or wounded and 200,000 killed or wounded on the Russian side, which is uh, g- given the superiority in numbers you think is kind of ratio that's not in in the abstract so terrible for russia and i had a a, a commander on the ground who he said ukrainian commander 500 guys he had at the outset of the war 100 killed 400 wounded and total turnover uh in his in his unit and he's he's the only military professional basically in the unit anymore that is a segue to exit question for you, Noah, you are optimistic or pessimistic about the state of the Ukraine war on the ground. So before I answer that question, I just want to briefly summarize why I think that this is a political liability for Ron DeSantis, in part because this statement of his, if it's operative by the time it gets to be litigated in the political process, will be dismantled in sound bites. The notion, as Charlie said, that he is running as a dovish politician, and that would be to his advantage, is undercut by the fact that he's running as a more hawkish politician on China and believes that this conflict is, is, is comes at a cost of that conflict, which convolutes the narrative. As he said, this is not a territorial, it's a territorial dispute like a, a bank robber and a depositor dispute over whose money it is. Um, this notion that it is a blank check is also foolish. This is congressional appropriations. And you were a member of Congress, sir. You understand how appropriations work. And ultimately, what you're advocating by pivoting to more domestic priorities, as you say, this is a distraction, is that Russia would win this war. I don't want Russia to win this war. Do you, mm-hmm. sir? Yeah, I think all liabilities. That, that is the question. Yeah. These are all profound liabilities, and it's a mistake for him to have made them. Um, am I optimistic about the course of this war? Not as much today as I was a couple of weeks ago, but things change on the ground. Uh, and they will change on the ground uh, vis-a-vis our relative commitments to this conflict. Uh, If we are committed to this conflict and to seeing the security and alliance architecture in Europe that has been a profoundly important geostrategic goal of the United States, maintaining the post-war order, if we are committed to its defense, then we will continue to commit to Ukraine's defense. Charlie. I've forgotten what the question is now because I was listening (laughs) so intently. Optimistic or pessimistic about the situation on the ground in Ukraine? Insofar as I don't think Russia is going to get all that it wants, I'm optimistic. Insofar as the maximalist position that many have staked out is going to be realized, I am pessimistic. I'm going to use this opportunity to quickly argue with Noah's amended exit answer too, and just say that while I don't know what the right answer is here, so this is not a, a moral judgment or a strategic judgment, the nature of a dove in a presidential election does not only con- it's not only contingent on a peace or war axis, but uh, a map too. And I, I do wonder whether 
Americans will be more worried in the future about the Chinese Communist Party, as DeSantis put it, than they are about the Russians. I, um, I think that's I think that's right, Charlie. But the the thing I, I think the ultimate hawk dove debate though is going to be about whether to fight for Taiwan. I I, I just think the uh, the question of of providing financial aid, you know, military aid to Ukraine pales in comparison to that. And right, and but yeah. there are people. And again, I come at this from more of a reader than a debater's perspective. There are people, Elbridge Colby, for example, who will say that the American involvement in Ukraine, the fact that we are sending them weapons, which is zero sum, the fact that we are sending them money, which given the amount of money that we owe and our deficit spending is zero sum, is distracting us from the yeah. big existential Reaganite challenge of our era, which yeah, yeah. is China. No, I, I'm, to- I'm totally with that. And I, I think you know, Br- Bridge um, makes uh, his way is very compelling. But if, if you think fentanyl is the main crisis, right. are you going to really like uh, risk aircraft carriers fighting for a, a small island o- offshore of China? You know what I mean? I, I'm just, I think some of the doves are saying, oh, we got to focus on that. When push comes to shove, they're not going to want to focus on and sure. for that either. Sure. Yeah, and I'm not endorsing what DeSantis right. said. In fact, of the three elements that I mentioned, I disagreed with two of them. I just, um, I wonder how that plays out in an election, which is ultimately how we resolve these things democratically, if not politically. Jim Garrity, optimistic, pessimistic situation on the ground in Ukraine. You can put me in with a consensus of less optimistic than I used to be. I think by, if not the beginning of summer, then by midsummer, we're going to have some answers. Uh, Ukraine's really got to have a big spring offensive push. Otherwise, the perception's going to set in of, you know what, the lines are what the lines are. They just don't have the, man- even with the best technology being shipped to them by NATO, they just don't have the manpower to change the dynamic going on. Russia's just dumping too many guys into there. And what we have here are new border lines, you know, in practice, if not in international law. So i increasingly pessimistic, but I guess, you know, there's time for, for Ukraine to turn it around. So I'm pessimistic. Uh, I think it's great that you, Ukraine obviously checked the effort to topple the government in Kiev and has embarrassed the, the Russian military. But I don't think time is on Ukraine's side. And I doubt it has the strength, you know, to, to push... Russia back to the February borders or even the borders uh, or, or, of course, the borders, um, the legitimate borders of Ukraine prior to, to 2014. And uh, Russia will just continue to, to bleed Ukraine and um, ho- hope that the, the, the interest of the West and commitment of the West wanes, which is not a crazy bet at all. With that, let me do a quick plug for NR Plus, digital subscription service at nationalreview.com. Your way around a meter paywall, your way to see 90% fewer ads, your way to dig deeper into our community, including commenting on articles and blog posts. Won't cost you an arm and a leg. Great first-time deals going at any given moment. And most importantly, it's a really crucial way to support our valuable journalism. We do rely on people paying at least a little something for our content. So if you admire what we do on this podcast, on the website, in the print magazine, please, please, please pony up just a little bit of money and subscribe to N 
R plus. So Jim Garrity, it hasn't been a Clintonium 1995 style dash to the center, but there have been signs of a little bit of movement from uh, Joe Biden positioning himself for 2024, the DC crime bill, which we talked about a couple episodes ago, floating the idea of holding families at the border again, which the left hates, and then approving this um, uh, drilling project in Alaska. Is Joe Biden inching to the center? Well, if listeners to this podcast are yelling at their speakers right now, no, no, he's not. He's still a old, crazy, batty, senile lefty that he always was. As Bill Clinton would say, I'll feel your pain. But I think what we're seeing with Biden, it's happening too regularly, almost on a metronomically regular schedule. Well, once a that, week. that regular? Uh, you know, about once a week for three, you know, for three straight weeks now. There's been some issue that you know is going to be a big deal in the upcoming presidential election. Crime, immigration, now the environment and energy. And on each one of them, he has left progressives, you know, like spitting mad, shocked. And in some of these cases, like on the... Uh, uh, you know, detaining families like Biden ran against this on the campaign trail for you know two three years ago. He denounced this. Then all of a sudden, ah, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe we got to do this. Um, the environmentalists did not see this move on Willow up in Alaska at all. And whether you're you know Sierra Club, Greenpeace, uh, the Squad, Ed Markey, they're they're just you know spitting hot fire over this, saying how could you possibly do this now. Is some of this just prepping for 2024? Yeah, almost certainly. I also noticed, though, that this all has happened after former White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain, the guy who a lot of us nicknamed Prime Minister Ron Klain, under the idea that sleepy, tired, elderly Joe Biden, who only operated a couple of good hours a day, that a lot of the decision-making was either being done by Ron Klain or that by the time it got to, pres to President Biden, Ron Klain was there whispering in his ear saying, Mr. President, you want to go in this direction, not that direction. I don't know if Jeff Zients, who took over February 8th, is that much of a centrist or that much less of a liberal. But it did happen to start, you know, that's what this change shift did, this shift did occur not too long after Zients took over. And I don't, we know what this is a deliberate strategy of. Okay, we're heading towards the real, you know, the re-election turn. It's time to time to tack back to the center. Time to triangulate, um, or whether it's just his instincts. Um, but I do think that Ron Klain, uh, th this does feel like a different decision-making process in the White House. And and you know, when when Biden surprised people on the DC crime bill, I noticed, and I point out that like he was he was shaped by the 1980s and the 1990s. At some point, the cement in, of the of the Joe Biden brain dries. And yes, I'm deliberately comparing his brain to cement. Um, in, in other words, it doesn't change its instincts all that easily. Yes, Joe Biden has talked a good game on criminal justice reform and also, but he's still the guy who bragged that every major crime bill had his name on this. So you give him a, you know, you say, hey, Mr. President, how do you want to handle this crime bill in DC? It's going to, you know, lessen the penalty for carjackings while DC is having a car explosion in carjackings. Biden's not going to go on board with this. So I, again, I th either it's Biden's instincts are coming back or Klain's not around to push him in a certain direction. Uh, and if you if you want to say, yeah, this doesn't count, this doesn't you know outweigh all the other stuff he's done, I completely agree with you. But these do feel like almost like deliberately timed and packaged fights with the left that are designed to make him look like he's more in the center. Yeah, Charlie, to Jim's final point, 
there or penultimate point. These aren't hugely consequential. I mean, the, the D.C. crime bill has real world, world consequences, but you know, the, Washington, D.C. is not the, the entirety of the United States of America. Family detention is not going to solve the, the border crisis, and Biden, you know, op- opened up the, the the floodgates there. Nor does this um, approval of this Willow project in um, Alaska really cut against the the uh, the hostility more broadly to fossil fuels. But they get attention, and they they get him attacked um, by people in his own party that that helps create the impression that he's a, a more centrist figure than, than they are. And, and he actually is. Is he? I think. Yeah, I don't think he's, you know, he's not, he's not AOC or Al Gore. He's not right now. He doesn't believe in anything. He never has. I think the best way of putting what Jim said is to say we have a new president. We had Ron Klain. Now we don't. Now we have a different guy who thinks differently. I don't think that Joe Biden believes in anything other than that the Democratic Party should win and that the Republican Party should lose. He has changed his mind repeatedly throughout his career. He rewrites his history when he can. He finds the center of the institutional left and follows it. He is easily affected by those around him. So you have a new chief of staff, you have the beginnings of a re-election campaign, and he moves a bit here. If it were electorally or socially desirable for Joe Biden to be AOC, he would be AOC. He's not a conviction politician. He doesn't have or express a consistent worldview. He is a ball. He's being buffeted around a court. I, I, re- I really see him in that, in that mold. No. I give this administration precisely zero credit when it comes to energy policy. They operated on a variety of delusions throughout the early part of this administration And then when reality came back to bite them, they had to behave in ways that were realistic. That, to me, is not something that's especially worthy of any credit. Biden administration entered office. Remember in 2019, uh, an Iranian-operated attack on the world's largest petroleum processing facility in Saudi Arabia. The United States could act as a stabilizing force, release enough reserves to stabilize the energy markets. We can't do that anymore. Why? Because the Biden administration entered office determined to put the screws to domestic energy producers, shutting down federal and uh, gas and oil leases, shutting down transit networks like the Keystone Pipeline, um, you know, a variety of executive orders designed to truncate the energy market domestically while going to war with the single most important producer on the planet, going after the Saudis, hammer and tong. Meanwhile, try, and on a, some sort of a convoluted humanitarian notion, deferring to the press corps, which believe that Jamal Khashoggi should be the sole determination of how we have a policy uh, with Riyadh, and meanwhile trying to reintegrate Iran into the, uh, into the oil markets, trying to usher Venezuela back into the community of nations. All of this was insane. It wasn't a policy. 
It was a series of delusions under which they operated, which were popular among progressives. The delusions collapse, and all of a sudden, they have to behave like a proper steward of American energy policy. Good for you. A little belated. So if that's a move to the center, maybe we can call it that. I would call it just the recognition of the world as we live in. And good for them for finally recognizing it, albeit belatedly. Jim Garrity, next question to you. Double-barreled. You would rather be Joe Biden or Donald Trump and a prospective general election matchup. You would rather be Joe Biden or Ron DeSantis in a prospective general election matchup. Between Trump and Biden, I'd rather be Biden. Always a better, you know, besides the serious uh, deficiencies and challenges that Trump brings to the table, it's always easier to be the incumbent. But I feel like if I could like control the mind of Ron DeSantis and get him the nomination, uh, then I like the odds of the young, energetic governor who just won by 20 points up against the 80-year-old man who keeps telling us about corn pop. So, so what's the caveat if you could control his mind? Uh, yeah. Th- th- in other words, I'm not thrilled with his latest moves. I don't know if I'm feeling as confident about him getting the nomination as I did before. But like change versus more of the same should be a fairly easy sales pitch with Joe Biden calling the shots. I think Biden is the favorite in both cases. I think he's getting away with it. I think the Republicans are blowing it. If the economy tanks or there is a serious crisis, that may change. But at the moment, I think that I would rather be Joe Biden than any of the candidates that the Republicans are putting up because the structural problems with the Republican Party and the relentless specter of Trump are creating room for Biden to pretend that he is just a nice old centrist. Noah. If the confluence of events that produced a presidential nomination for Ron DeSantis were to occur, it would sideline Donald Trump in ways that could be very, uh, uh, beneficial to uh, Ron DeSantis' campaign. And that would remove a lot of the uh, temptation to pander to a part of the the Republican electorate that just terrifies general election voters. Uh, And that would redound to his benefit. So if he were the nominee, I think Joe Biden, while being the incumbent and all the advantages that bestows, and probably would be the favorite, would be just a very marginal favorite. Um, So I I would perhaps... Uh, qualified, I'd rather be Ron DeSantis in that contest. Donald Trump, not so much. I think I'd rather be Biden and both. Obviously, Biden and Trump, and I think Biden versus DeSantis as well. I'm, I'm with Charlie. I just think uh, uh, it's going to be harder to dislodge him than we might think or hope. And then there's a factor if DeSantis beats Trump, yeah, it's great. He's He's vanquished Trump. Maybe that gives him a good amount of distance from Trump, having beaten him. But then Trump is going to be aggrieved and a disruptive factor. So uh, I, I, I go Biden and Biden. With that, let me mention the Idea Summit. The National Review Institute is holding in Washington, D.C. real soon here, just in a couple of weeks, Thursday, March 30th, and Friday, March 31st. A great opportunity to uh, hear really intelligent and stimulating conservative discussion here from folks like Bill Barr and David Bonson and Tom Cotton, and Megan Kelly, and a bunch of our colleagues. 
and have a really good time. So if you want to check it out, it's nriinstitute.org, nrinstitute.org. Did I say NRI Institute? I'm throwing an extra I in there. It's nrinstitute.org. Please check it out. So let's hit a few other things before we go. Jim Garrity, you are waiting for Aaron Rodgers to show up as a jet. Yes, in fact, this uh, you could say this past weekend, I saw this great play by Samuel Beckett waiting for Rodgers. Um, look, as uh, by the time people hear this, maybe we'll have an answer one way or the other. This is the second day of the official tampering period of the NFL. The league year ends tomorrow, but teams are allowed to have discussions and negotiations for free agency. And everybody kind of expected that the deal between the Green Bay Packers and the New York Jets to send Aaron Rodgers from the green uniform of the Green Bay Packers to the slightly brighter shade of green uniform of the New York Jets would happen by now. The Jets owner and head coach and uh, general manager and offensive coordinator, who's one of Rodgers' best buddies, went out and talked to him late last week. Um, listeners probably know that Rodgers in the offseason said he was going into sensory deprivation because there is nothing that is more uh, better preparation for being quarterback of the New York Jets than to be in total <laughs> darkness with absolutely no sense of connection to anything whatsoever. Um, I, I've come around to this. There's a big question about whether Rodgers is decl- He's getting up there in years. He didn't have a great year last year. Was that a frustration with the Packers? Was that a sign of the slow decline of age? I do think if you add Rodgers to the Jets and everybody else stays healthy, and we get, you know, uh, Mecky Becton comes back. Uh, they're, they're, the ingredients are there to have a good team. I just have seen a lot of things go wrong. It does sound like the rumors that the compensation required would not be that bad. The salary cap hit, at least for this year, would not be that bad. And yet Aaron Rodgers, who enjoys being the center of attention, is making everyone wait. It's not like this is, you know, he's had plenty of time to think about this. It's not like the Jets suddenly jumped out of an alley and said, hey, do you want to play for us? So we are waiting and waiting and waiting. But that is the nature of a New York Jets fan. There are no simple answers. So no, things have gotten pretty crazy in the Roth Rothman household. You watched a documentary on the U.S. nuclear posture recently. <laughs> yeah, I'm rewatching. A, a, this is a darker, lighter item. Uh, I'm rewatching a documentary produced re- by the re- San- rewatching rewatching because wow. it's that good. Um, it's produced by Sandita National Labs. It's called an oral history of uh, U.S. nuclear posture. And it is, it's good insofar as it's hard to find this sort of thing, that it's just devoid of moralism and passion and just looks at U.S. the evolution of U.S. nuclear posture as a purely intellectual exercise, which it is, fortunately enough. Uh, talking about nuclear war is purely intellectual because it's never happened. But if you're of the um, impression that uh, mutually assured destruction is just the operating uh, thesis, which is Joe Biden's operating thesis apparently, it's just false. It's not true. I mean, if you ever wanted to know how you could win a nuclear war in a first strike all by yourself, this is the documentary to watch. (laughs) Charlie Cook. I went to the Players, the golf tournament here near Jacksonville in Florida. And I think this year I enjoyed it more than I have in previous years, partly because my kids enjoyed it more than they had in previous years, and partly because I understood the game better. As I have related before, have started caddying for my six-year-old. So I have a little bit more insight into golf, even through him. But I also had some people with me who could explain the game and answer all of my questions and introduce me to the structure of the tournament and so on. And uh, so, so are the big crowds? 
Yeah, we went on the Wednesday and the, uh, sorry, the Thursday and the Friday. The Thursday was a little quieter. The Friday was really busy and then it gets... Do, do, you, do, you, do you move hold to hole or, yeah. or sit and stand somewhere? Uh, a combination. Uh, we followed a few people around, uh, which involves moving hold to hole. But then toward the end of the day, there's a particularly nice area to sit from which you can see both the 16th green and the entirety of hole 17 which is a very famous hole so toward the end of the day we would sit there and watch everyone come through so i saw the masters once so at least i was there for two days and it was when tiger was at its height and it was just absolutely insane and the greens were very fast these days and i just remember you know he'd be standing like right there right right uh, you know 10 feet from the hole or whatever and someone to make an amazing shot you know the, the ball would stop two inches from the hole you think it, it was stopped and then it would just like there'd be a little a little tiny tiny wiggle to it like almost in, in uh, undetectable and then before you know it it'd start rolling and rolling and rolling and then end up like 20 yards away <laughs> it's uh it was it was amazing. So I saw a production of The Music Man at uh, our local high school, and just what a wonderful play! It's it's it was a great production, but it's it's almost impossible to to mess mess that up. It's so uh, so cheerful and entertaining. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick? So our good friend Dan McLaughlin is usually thought of as being a great. Uh, legal mind and a great political analyst, but he has a piece of the corner, how fast can we build warships today? And he puts his finger on a kind of lingering concern. We are sending a heck of a lot of armament over to Ukraine, and then we're hearing from people in the defense uh, industry. Well, actually, we we can't restock those supplies for years and years. It's going to take us a real long time, which feels really ominous. And apparently, you know, Jerry Hendricks has an overview of this in the Atlantic Basically sounding the alarm and basically saying we don't have nearly enough ships, Navy ships, civilian ships, any of that stuff if things go south in the Pacific between China and Taiwan. Yeah, this this should be our industrial policy, repairing our subs more quickly, building ships and missiles more quickly. It's, uh, uh, you know, provides good jobs and actually serves an important national purpose. Noah, what's your pick? Uh, the cover article in the latest issue by Dominic Pino, Unions, Who Wants Them? Uh, there has been something of a great forgetting among Republicans about what organized labor is, what it has become, and the threat it presents to individual liberty and productivity and entrepreneurialism. And Dominic recenters the debate in ways that I think are really valuable. Charlie? I'm going to pick Jim's two posts. It's two morning jolts. Yesterday's and today's Biden's big bank bailout and the Silicon Valley bank blame game intensifies. Absolutely terrific explainers accessible to everyone, whether they're a finance guru or not, and a real credit to NR's coverage. So Jim did a great job, but no offense to Jim. I think the best piece we have run on this fiasco is by David Bonson, The Real Reason Silicon Valley Bank collapsed so that's it for us you've been listening to a national review podcast any rebroadcast retransmission or account of this game without the express written permission of national magazine is strictly prohibited this podcast has been produced by the incomparable sarah shitty who makes us sound better than we deserve thank you charlie thank you noah thank you jim thanks to moink and thanks especially to all of you for listening we're the editors we'll see you next time